So last week we started, we kicked off our, our brand new series, Ask Because Your Questions Matter. And so over the last month or two, we uh, asked you to set in your questions that you were most curious about regarding the faith, and then we had you vote on five questions that you wanted answered. And so today we're picking up with that series, and today we're addressing this question. How do you handle Christian family with different values than yours? How do you handle Christian family with different values than yours? And if you want to have an idea of what the other upcoming questions are in your bulletin, it'll list the, the, last, the remaining three questions that we've got. But this morning, we're talking about how do we handle differences that we experience when the other person is Christian or when the other people are, 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 is the Christian family. And this is a really good question, and it reminds me of an incident that I had uh, when I experienced a difference with another ministry colleague in my Christian family. Not, not my immediate like blood family, but Christian family at the faith community that I was a part of. Uh, and this happened just a couple years ago. And so back in 2021, when Dante Wright was killed by former Brooklyn Center police officer Kim Potter, uh, I went to Facebook to share my thoughts on the tragedy. And I felt torn by the situation after hearing the news that the police officer had mistook her pistol for her taser. I also wish that Dante Wright had cooperated with the authorities, but I knew I had no idea what the dynamics were like. I had no idea what it was like to be a black person. I know I, know I had no idea what it meant to be a police officer and had to make that decision in that, in that split second. From the tragedy and, and me reflecting, I felt like I needed to be more competent in whatever field of expertise that I'm in, to avoid mistakes that could be costly. I wanted to make sure that I was competent with my skills and, and believers, I mean, my skills and my abilities as a believer, as a husband, as a pastor, as a brother, um, simply as a person here on earth so that my incompetencies wouldn't hurt somebody. I just wanted to make sure that I knew what I was doing with, with whatever I was gifted and, and skilled in. I was met with sympathy from most people who, who interacted with my post, but there was one colleague who seemed to be bothered by it, and then we went down this rabbit trail of what seemed to be him questioning my faithfulness in being a ministry leader. Um, I didn't interact as, with it as much, but then when others responded to his comments, it turned into a war zone. We had people who, uh, you know, who were mutual friends. We had people who, you know, where I was the mutual friend, where he, you know, my ministry colleague knew who I was and another person who I, who I was, but they didn't know who each other were. And so they're just going back and forth, and it started to be just this war zone of like, well, you need to be reading your Bible uh, if you don't believe in what I believe in. And, you know, the other person would be like, well, I don't believe in the Bible. And so it just got so so bad that I was like, man, I, I just got to get rid of this post. Um, I ended up being really frustrated with this ministry colleague, uh, and I messaged with him and shared with him how frustrated I felt, told him I didn't care to hear his explanation of what he was trying to do, and then turn off all notifications from him. I was so frustrated that someone who believed in Jesus, who read the Bible, who prayed to the same God that I did, could see the situation in such a different light and come off in such an unloving and just rude attitude towards other people who didn't believe Jesus. Now, it wasn't unusual to see others, believers, act like this in social media, especially over the last five to six years. But to personally know someone who acted like this just felt so horrible. It felt so divisive. 
I felt like a hypocrite because I came from a similar faith community that he did where we both proclaimed the truth of God uh, and we're both called to love on others. But in my opinion, what he expressed was far from loving. I felt like I needed to apologize on his behalf to the friends, to my friends that he was rude to for the sake of the gospel. I felt ashamed to be associated with Christians who acted like this. And in all honesty, I felt like I'd be okay if I would, I'd never associate with him again. Have you ever been in situations like this before? What happens when your Christian family has different value than, values than yours? Or maybe even Christian friends. What happens when your Christian family or friends has different values than yours? Maybe it's gotten to the level where we want to disassociate or cut off, but uh, maybe it hasn't gotten to that point like my, my experience, but I'm sure we experience tension when our opinions are different from other Christians, especially around issues like same-sex relations, relationships or abortion, politics, gender, race. Maybe it's the right way of understanding the Bible or do you have the right theology? It might even be as simple as are you going to a church that preaches the gospel or talks about the gospel? Now, if you've experienced this tension to any degree or any level, what do you do? Before we go any further, I'd love to offer two additional resources on this topic. Again, I don't know everything, and, and, I, you know, and, and so I want you to do some, some exploring as well, too. And so one of my favorite podcasts, The Holy Post, has a mini-series called Why I'm Still a Christian, uh, where they interview believers who have been shunned by the larger Christian community because they have a different stance on a particular issue. And the two current issues, the, the, the two current available episodes feature Lecrae, a hip-hop artist who was once celebrated in, in white evangelical circles but then faced conflict when he spoke, to, spoke up about racial, uh, re, the re, recent racial issues uh, in America. Uh, the second is author Christian Dumay, the author of Jesus and John Wayne. Christian, uh, Christian looks at toxic masculinity and misogyny within white evangelical, evangelicalism and its impact on American history and culture. Now, I mentioned Holy Post last week because I think, you know, I, I love this podcast because they tackle some really big issues that sometimes we just don't have the answer to tackle. And so they help process some of the understandings or maybe some of the misunderstandings that we might assume are true when it comes to the church. And so I really love their perspective they provide. And so, again, just check it out all in all. It's a great podcast. The second resource is an article called The Place Called Community, written by Parker Palmer, who offers a perspective that the problems we experience in our community are not obstacles. Oftentimes when we experience differences, we feel like it's an obstacle that we have to overcome, whether we you know, again, disassociate or cut or, you know, or not be with that person. But what Parker Palmer says is that they are opportunities to refine our understanding so that we can grow. So he says conflict is good. Conflict helps us grow. They're not obstacles. Now, it might feel like believers having different values from other believers. It might be more of a recent issue, but it's actually been an issue all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, a large chunk of spiritual leaders dealt with this. 
the prophets would share God's desire with the nation's leaders and then the people that they were ministering to. And generally, the people and the leaders who the prophet was talking to, they generally, they would ignore the prophet and what the prophet had to say. Instead, they would carry out their spirituality in, in their own way or the way that they thought best. And when they didn't listen to the prophet, oftentimes what happened was that they would uh, they would receive consequence, they would receive judgment. And so all throughout the Old Testament, this happens over and over and over again. In the New Testament, Jesus has 12 disciples who all recognized him as the Son of God in one point or another. And they also recognized him as their Savior. So they agreed on who Jesus was. But based on their jobs, based on their backgrounds, they probably saw things very differently and encountered obstacles and differences. You get one of Jesus' disciples, Matthew, who was a tax collector, who worked for the Roman government. Matthew was kind of like your typical white-collar job, you know, worked in the office, might have required some education and reputation. Uh, so again, he was working for the government. You get Andrew, Peter, James, and John. They were kind of your average Joes. They worked hard physically. You know, they, 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 they had to, to work out. They had to uh, bust their butt because they were fishermen. Again, they were just trying to earn a living, so kind of your average Joe. And then you get Simon, who was a zealot. Not necessarily a job, but zealots were violent extremists looking to overthrow the Roman government. Now, although we don't get any, any stories of the interactions between Jesus and disciples, and as much as I would love to, had hear, uh, to hear about their interactions, especially when they first got together, imagine that dynamic, that among the 12 disciples, you have one guy who's working and benefiting from an oppressive empire, you've got another guy who wants to throw that same oppressive um, empire, and then you have four other guys who are just trying to make it within the system. Even in the early church, leaders experienced differences. Paul and Barnabas were sent out as missionaries, and Barnabas' cousin, Mark, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark, Mark tagged along on their first missionary journey together. So they all went to different places to share Jesus with the world. During the trip, Mark decides to leave Paul and Barnabas, likely because he was discouraged and he was homesick. And so Mark leaves Paul and Barnabas. After Paul and Barnabas finished their first missionary trip, they eventually decide to go back and visit the churches. And Barnabas wants to take Mark, but Paul doesn't. He feels like he felt like Mark deserted them when Mark left. And so in Acts chapter 15, verse 39, it describes their difference, Paul and Barnabas, it describes their difference as a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and left. Now, Barnabas was one of the very first believers who accepted Paul as a believer and welcomed him in, even before the disciples, because the disciples were afraid of Paul's previous life uh, as a persecutor. Paul was known as Saul, and in the early church, Saul would go around and disrupt the churches. He would put the men, women, and children, men and women, and, I think children, in jail because they were believers, and so the disciples were scared that Paul wasn't really, wasn't really transformed by Jesus. Paul was out to get them. But Barnabas was one of the first ones who trusted Paul, accepted Paul, and even worked with Paul. 
they became two faithful ministry leaders who worked well together, but again, over this disagreement, over this difference of bringing Mark on the second missionary trip caused them to separate. Now, thankfully, we learn that Paul and Barnabas reconciled their difference, and we get this because we see that later on, Paul and Mark do ministry with each other again. In Philemon, verse 24, Paul describes Mark as his fellow worker. And again, Paul didn't want to bring Mark on the missionary trip. Paul was upset that Mark had deserted them, but Paul calls Mark as his fellow worker. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, Paul describes Mark as helpful to me in ministry. And so we know that there was some reconciliation that happened because Paul and Mark do ministry with each other later on. I know I have assumed that every believer should agree or have the same belief as me, and that's something that I work with, but again, that's not the case, that we all have differences, even though we are a faith family. Now, if everyone believed the same thing that you did or if everyone believed the same thing that I did, the dangers of that is that we might find ourselves in an echo chamber where our beliefs and our opinions are reinforced by others who have the same beliefs and opinions and alternative ideas are not allowed in the space. And echo chambers are generally unhealthy because it oftentimes, what's the result of echo chambers is that it only allows a very narrow view on things. There's no other perspectives that are, that are, are, are considered. And so the danger is that it offers a very narrow view of things because the same beliefs, same opinions are reinforced by everybody. It's very normal to experience differences with other believers, at least while we're here on earth. But we need to learn how to handle them in godly way. And so don't think that, you know, if someone has a different opinion than you are, that they're evil, they're bad. Again, we need to learn how to handle our differences in, godly, in a godly way. And thankfully, Paul being someone who had differences with his fellow workers, Paul provides a lot of instruction when it comes to dealing with differences. We get the entire book of 1 Corinthians where the church was divided on issues, and Paul comes in and Paul's like, this is how you solve it. Today, the passage that I want to focus on is, was the one that I read earlier for our scripture reading portion, and it's Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 17. And in Colossians here, Paul specifically instructs believers on how they should deal with differences with false teachers. That's the context. Paul writes to the believers and tells them how they should deal with false teachers. But I think the concepts are just as relevant to help us handle differences with other believers. And so Colossians is about handling your differences with those who don't believe. Again, I think those concepts also overlap into what it means to deal with differences with those who do believe. And so I'm going to highlight some of the things that Paul says. And so in Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 2, Paul reminds the church this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Paul reminds them that they have been raised with Christ, and so they can't think and act like the way they used to. We can't think and act like the way that we used to when we're dealing with differences. Instead, they need to think and act like Christ. So do we. In order to think and act like Christ, there are behaviors that the believers need to get rid of. And so in verse 8, he lists these behaviors. This is what he says. 
But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. These behaviors are specifically tied to the unhealthy and sinful way we approach others with our attitude and, and speech. The first uh, attitude that we get, need to get rid of is anger. Anger is an ongoing feeling of dislike or hatred towards someone. We get rage, which is an intense form of anger that results in violent outbursts. Malice is an intentional attitude that seeks to harm a person and their reputation with our words. Slander is speaking harshly and arrogantly to others. Filthy language is meant to insult and abuse another person. If Paul encourages the believers to not speak like this towards false teachers, I think it paints a picture of how much more graceful we need to be when it comes to speaking to other believers who have different values than we do. Now, the NIV application commentary offers this insight, which I thought was very helpful, is what it says. Christian speech is not determined solely by whether it is true or false, but whether it helps or harms another. Let me say that again. Christian speech is not determined solely by whether it is true or false, but whether it helps or harms another. One way I like to think about this is, what is your intention and what is your impact? If your intention is to help this other, be, other, other person be better, but the impact is negative and they feel hurt by what you're saying, then you need to re-examine what was your intention and how can your intentions line up with the impact. And so if your intention is meant to be good, then make an impact that is good. But if your intention is good and the result ends up being bad, something got lost in the translation. And so intention and impact. What we might have to say is true, but if it's said in a harmful way, it might not be helpful at all. So what are we to do? What are we to do? In verses 12 through 14, this is what Paul says, and this is the solution he offers of how we should go about speaking to one another. Let me read this for us. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, Paul uses fashion language of putting on your outfit of the day by encouraging the believers to clothe themselves. Some of us were very intentional in what we wore this morning. A couple verses before this, he tells the believers to put on the new self. Again, similar language of dressing yourself. There was an intentionality that we chose the outfit we chose because it was our outfit of the day. It was the fit for this morning. Put on and clothe yourselves with Christ-like qualities of compassion, of kindness, of humility, of gentleness, and of patience. So what is compassion? Compassion is caring for those in need. Kindness is a genuine care for another person's feelings and desires. Humility is serving others without caring if others notice or not. 
gentleness, I thought this was a really unique definition of gentleness. Gentleness is described like this. The power which in a situation of conflict enables us to criticize another's conduct so that they experience it as help and not as condemnation. Wow. I don't think I've ever experienced criticism as something that is help and not condemnation. Let me just say that again. Gentleness is the power which in a situation of conflict, so when you're dealing with conflict, gentleness enables us to criticize another's conduct so that they experience it as help and not as condemnation. I think the one reason why I say wow is I don't think criticism oftentimes feels like it's help. So maybe it's, it's critique, maybe it's, it's feedback, I don't know. But again, gentleness is the ability to share what it is so that the other person receives it, feel like it's, that, that it's help and not condemnation. And then lastly, patience is a willingness not to seek revenge, but to endure the faults of the perpetrator in order to forgive them. Patience allows us to forgive when it's needed. And all of these things, all of these things must be done in the spirit of love. And so we need to be compassionate. We need to be kind. We need to be uh, in humility, gentleness, and patient in light of love. Love is the umbrella which all these behaviors fall under. We need to do all these things in love. These are the qualities we need to have so that when we do experience differences with our Christian families, we can handle them in a healthy way. Now, you may have heard these qualities somewhere else in the Bible, and they're commonly referred to as the fruit of the Spirit, found in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. And what's unique about Colossians is that we're encouraged to put on, we're encouraged to clothe ourselves with these characteristics, whereas in Galatians, it tells us that these qualities are, should be natural byproducts uh, when, we receive, when we, we receive the Holy Spirit and when we believe in Jesus. And so what is it, what is it really saying? What, do we, do we naturally, supernaturally receive these when, when we believe in Jesus or do we have to intentionally put these things on? I think what Galatians and Colossians together is trying to tell us is that when we believe in Jesus and we're transformed by the Holy Spirit, we're given these qualities. These qualities are byproducts and we have to intentionally choose to put them on every day so that we can demonstrate these qualities to each other. It's both that Jesus blesses us with these characteristics and we also have to intentionally choose to demonstrate them to others. Now, earlier, I, sh- I shared my regrets of having to handle the, the situation with my ministry colleague differently. And thankfully, we were able to connect with him. I was able to connect with him uh, a couple months after the incident. I was kind of put in a situation where I had to connect with him. And so we ran each, to each other at, at a church conference and uh, saw him. I'm like, I just can't ignore him. You know, it's just, we're at a church conference. This is, you know, I just can't ignore him. You know, it's not right. And on top of that, we had a preacher who preached just this beautiful language of, of reconciling your differences with each other. So I'm like, all right, I, I just can't ignore him, you know. But all I could do at that moment was just simply say hi. You know, I, I wasn't ready to deal with it yet. I was like, I'm just going to say hi. And then in, you know, after I said hi and left, you know, he came after and he's like, hey, you know, like, yeah, yeah, a minute to talk. I'm like, yeah, let's talk. So we were able to hear each other out. 
We were able to apologize. We were able to name our mistakes. We were able to learn from each other. And we were able to agree on certain things, but be okay disagreeing on other things. I personally think my relationship with him can still improve, but it's definitely better than where it was. And I think these are some practical steps that you can take if you've experienced differences with other believers in your family, or it could be good preparation because I think it's a matter of when you experience differences, not a matter of if. And so expect that you are going to experience differences with me, and I'm going to experience differences with you, and we all are going to experience differences with each other. It's just going to happen. And so here are four things, four things that you can do. And some of the words that helped me um, put this together came from an article uh, written by the Gospel Coalition uh, titled, Exit the Echo Chamber, It's Time to Persuade. And it was written, written by Brett McCracken. And so again, this helped me provide some language of what I experienced with my ministry colleague. And so the first thing is, watch your tone. When you experience differences, watch your tone. Now, this might feel a little bit odd because we don't experience differences in person or maybe not as much as we used to. With things like social media, text messages, emojis, we don't know how the other person's tone is. We just simply interpret. But I strongly encourage you to handle your differences in person and at the minimum, at least a phone call. Oftentimes in the office, whenever Greg and I, we're like, all right, you know, we've gone back and forth three times through text messages. If we've gone more than three times over a text message or a Facebook message, it's time to call another person because that's when things can get lost in translation. And so again, handle your differences in person or at least through a phone call, not over text, not over Facebook posts, not, not on a thread, not on Messenger. Pick up the phone, call them. Or if you want to message a time to meet and, and, and settle a difference in person, do it in person, do it over the phone, and watch your tone. It's so easy to misinterpret a Facebook post. It's so easy to misinterpret a text, an emoji. So it's important to address our differences in person so that we can pay attention to the cues, like our tones, like our nonverbals. I know I can start to get irritated with someone when my tone becomes sharp. I speak a little louder and I avoid eye contact. So I know that I'm avoiding, uh, something's going on when I experience those things. It's important to be aware of what you're saying and it's also important of how you're saying it. And so the content is important, but again, the way that you're saying it is just as important. Even if you're right, you can make saying the right thing the wrong thing when you say it the wrong way. Let me say that again. You can make saying the right thing the wrong thing when you say it the wrong way. That's a quote that I borrowed from Daniel Yang, the director of Church Multiplication Institute. It's a quote that I borrowed and, and adapted. He had a different context for it, but I thought it was a great quote. So address your differences in person and watch your tone. Second, be willing to teach and be teachable. So when you experience differences with somebody else, be willing to teach and also be teachable. Challenge what the other person is saying and also be challenged by what they're saying. Respectfully share what you think and listen to what the other person has to offer. When Jesus encountered differences with religious leaders, he sometimes would ask questions. 
And questions can help us clarify. It can help us better understand the concern that the person has. And so don't assume that you understand what they're talking about. Ask questions to clarify, to better understand the situation. Differences can be great learning opportunities for you if you're willing to put on humility and you can also invite the other person, the other person to learn too. Make it a dialogue. Make it a conversation. Oftentimes when we experience differences, we're simply telling the other person. But make it a conversation. Next, it's okay to disagree on some without disagreeing on all. It's okay to disagree on some without disagreeing on, every, on all. Find a common ground that you agree on. Find a foundation that, again, we're like, okay, I agree with you on this, this, and this, and this. But you don't have to agree on everything. It might even be helpful to start talking about what you agree on before you move to disagreements. We can still be in relationship with each other without agreeing on everything. Like they say, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Again, agree on some. You don't have to agree on some, don't have to agree on all, or disagree with some, don't have to disagree on all. Lastly, if it's necessary, set boundaries. Paul and Barnabas had a disagreement about Mark, and that caused them to separate, but they all came back and they all reconciled. You might need to separate yourself from them, but do not cut them off. Do not disassociate from them. Take time, cool off, resolve the differences another time. It might seem like a healthy relationship isn't supposed to have differences. It might seem like a healthy relationship doesn't have conflict, but I'd argue that if a relationship doesn't have conflict, that it might not be as deep a relationship as you think it is. It might even be a superficial relationship if you've never been upset with someone else. The lack of difference and conflict can be, um, can, can be concerning because there is no depth to the relationship. Now, as we come to an end here, I mentioned an article earlier called A Place Called Community by Parker Palmer. And he describes a true community by saying this. The great danger in our utopian dreams of community is that they lead us to want association with people just like ourselves. That it will be an extension and expansion of our own egos, a confirmation of our own partial view of reality. But in true community, we do not choose our companions. Instead, they are given to us by grace. In fact, True community might be defined as that place where the person we least want to live with always lives. Let me read that last sentence again. In fact, true community might be defined as that place where the person we least want to live with always lives. Community can break our minds and our egos, open to the experience of a God who cannot be contained. Community will constantly remind us that our grip on truth is fragile and incomplete, that we need many ears to hear the fullness of God's word. I loved how he talked about in true community, we do not choose our companions. Instead, they are given to us by grace. They're given to us by Jesus. And I think that is very true of our faith family here that we did not choose each other, but we were given to each other by grace. 
And so let the differences that you and I experience with other Christians, whether it's people in your family, whether it's people in this church, whether it's people who go to other churches, it's people who have different biblical interpretations and theology as you, let them be a moment when you experience differences. Let them be moments where you listen for Jesus' voice. It could be an opportunity for you to hear the fullness of God's word for your life. It could be a moment for them to hear the fullness of God, God's word in their life. And so let us be a community that can work through our differences in a godly and in a loving way. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the example of Paul and Barnabas and how even though they were first faith friends who worked so well with each other, Lord, over the decision of taking Mark with them on a missionary journey, separated them. And oftentimes, Lord, what our world tells us is to dissociate, to cut off. We don't need them in our lives, Lord. But I trust that the people in our lives, whether it's here or the families or the communities that we are a part of, Lord, that they are a product of grace, that you've brought them into our lives and you've brought us into their lives as a, because, because of grace. And that we can learn from each other, Lord. That we can hear the fullness of your voice in them and they can hear the fullness of God's voice uh, from us, Lord. And so, God, would you work in our lives, Lord, that we may be clothed with compassion, kindness, humility, Lord, patience. May we bind all those things up in love, Lord, and be patient with those who frustrate us, those who hurt us, those who proclaim that they're Christians, but again, um, we feel indifferent, we feel difference about because they, they hurt us, Lord. Would you be with us in those moments and would you allow us to intentionally put on and clothe um, the characteristics, the qualities that we have in being raised up in you. And again, that may we love them and that may we learn whatever truth they have for us, Lord, and may we learn from them as well too. In the gospel, you tell your disciples that they will know that you are believers because of your love. And so, God, may we operate out of love, Lord, when our world tells us not to. And so teach us to care and love for those who we have differences with. Holy Spirit, would you put a person on our hearts this morning, Lord, who maybe is a Christian brother, sister, maybe it's a, uh, a fellow believer, Lord, who we have had differences with, Lord, whether it's a personal um, situation or from, you know, from afar, it feels like it's been, you know, it, it feels like, man, I, I just don't know how I can associate with that person because we're so different in what we believe and we, and we claim to believe in the same thing. Would you put a person on our hearts, Lord, who we experience that with? And would you soften our hearts, Lord? May you teach us to love them, to be compassionate, to be kind, to have humility, to have patience, and just to care for them, Lord, and to give them space to hear what, them, what, what they have to say. And would you allow us to also speak truth in their lives, Lord, in a gentle way, Lord, so that we can help provide insight and perspective of how we experience them too. May we do this all for your glory and your glory alone, not for ours, but for your glory. 
in the name of love and in the name of Jesus Christ who died for us, Lord. May we be um, a community that loves one another, Lord, so that the world may know who you are. We thank you. We pray that this is your name, Lord. Amen.